welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, I'm very excited that my guest today is Tim Mullaney, who heads up everything strategy at Havas. Um, I'm going to ask him to give us uh, his little uh, accelerated 90-second resume, uh, which is a tradition of what we do, um, or the best impression of that he can in 90 seconds. And we'll get on to a conversation. We decided that it would be kind of interesting to tackle the topic of how to be a strategist in 2020, since we're all uh, working from Zoom, um, creatives are avoiding us, et cetera, et cetera. And if, uh, Tim has any, any uh, learnings from uh, the last few months of, uh, of what it's been like. So uh, that's going to be the gist of the conversation. We may go off track here and there, but um, hand over to Tim. Welcome to Inspiring Futures and uh, good to have you on the, on the show. Great to be here. Thank you, Ed. I'll try to do the resume in 60 seconds instead of 90. I am currently the head of strategy for Habas North America and also the president of the New York office. Uh, prior to that, I was the executive director of brand and strategy at RGA. And before that, I ran strategy at Ogilvy. Uh, prior to coming back to the East Coast, which is where I'm from originally, I was the head of strategy and new business at Hal Reinian Partners when Hal was around. And that was a, a remarkable, informative uh, experience, which we can we can talk about a little bit. And then outside the manic world of advertising, and when I'm not trapped in Zoomlandia, I also write novels. I have five novels out, working on the sixth, which is terribly late, uh, but uh, that keeps an arm and maybe a leg in the creative world as well. So yeah, that's what I've been up to, and that's what brings me here. So. Um... What's the situation with the agency? You're all, uh, the office, is the office open or closed until, uh, how's it working? The office right now is open for those who want to work out of the office, but it's not mandatory that they come in. And I think that's typical of a number of agencies right now. We're not saying to people, you have to come in because depending on their personal circumstance and the circumstance of their family, the logistics, you know, can be daunting if they don't have healthcare. I mean, sorry, not healthcare, if they don't have childcare, if their kids are in school or not in school. So many of the kids are on a hybrid program right now. My daughter, for example, is in school, but on a reduced schedule. She's Zooming as much as she's going to classes. So how do you deal with those logistics? So there are those of us who have gone into the office uh, for the last several weeks to you know, put stuff on the wall, get together, talk about what's happening in a pitch, that kind of thing. But it's still not anywhere close to full capacity and I doubt it will be between now and the end of the year. We're just making it very clear the office is there. It's safe. It's accessible to everyone, but we're not making it mandatory until things are a lot more under control in people's lives. And would you say that, um, I mean, obviously, it's been a learning journey um, in terms of this is a very intense people business where we barge into people's offices, we have random conversations in stairwells, uh, we grab coffee, we grab beers, um, 
you, you know, we like presenting, we like the theatrical side of pitching. Um, all those things have sort of gone by the wayside and we've had to replace them with, with Zoom <laughs> and other things. Do you think you've gone through a learning curve and have um, mastered some of these remote technologies and managed to cope and, and actually can, can perform reasonably well now? Yeah, I don't know if I would say mastered, but I think we've performed rather well given the circumstances. We had one pitch that was originally going to be, you know, the usual month and a half or so, and it got extended to almost four and a half months. And that was done entirely on Zoom, everything from the chemistry to the presentations. But most importantly, on the agency side, absent the ability to get together, put everything on a wall, how do you deal with a, a pitch with all the moving parts? This was across several offices. It was a global pitch. So in that context, really getting good at how do you collaborate in a virtual world? And if you're trapped in Zoomlandia, how do you not let that trap you into nothing but meetings? Because everyone knows the good thinking and the ideas don't happen in the meetings. It's the conversations in the hallways in between the meetings. It's the, hey, let's get coffee. Let's go have lunch. So really putting in those extra hours to have the one-on-one -on -one conversations or the let's talk tonight after you put your kids to bed or after you've had dinner. And on average, you know, I heard people talking about how Zoom was really adding two to three hours a day onto an already long, in some cases, ridiculously long workday. But if you didn't do that, you didn't get that collaboration. You didn't get those collisions of ideas and the work didn't get there. So early on, because we were in a couple of rather important pitches right when the lockdown happened, we had to get very good very quickly at not losing those creative connections and those moments of ideation that just happen organically with people who are hanging out physically uh, in person. But it made for some very long days. I mean, I think everybody by the end of the summer was thoroughly exhausted. And the good news is we won the pitch and we won another. But even in the learning of it, you know, people got pretty run down and, and we're constantly keeping an eye on how is the work distributed and how do we swarm this next problem to make sure the core teams know that they're not you know, all alone because it's very easy to feel isolated under these circumstances. So a lot of the just check-in calls, reaching out, let's get together to talk. On one hand, the last thing people need is another phone call. But if you don't have those phone calls that are less structured, the structured ones take over and the thinking gets really linear. And I think people get a little bit burned out and that's the last thing you want, especially, uh, uh, especially with, with the clients under so much pressure. Yeah. And so when it comes to pitching, how do you bring, how are you bringing theater? Oh, is that almost too much to ask? Is it, is it just to get it done properly and clearly and in the best possible way? And then there's a sizzle and the added things we used to bring a, a push to the wayside, or have you found interesting ways to make these meetings more interesting? Because you're dealing with clients who are probably themselves on 24 Zoom meetings a day, and this is just another Zoom meeting. It just happens to be the most important pitch for you of the year. It's for the client, it's another Zoom meeting. I've heard about some really creative attempts to use the technology. Earlier, you and I were talking about the backgrounds and having a little bit of fun with the platform. And I, and I think that's great, but what I've found is the best thing you can do is what you would do in an in-person uh, tissue session, if it's strategic tissue session or creative tissue session, where you just let it breathe a little bit. I think there's a tendency often for agencies to present too much and not make observations that then lead to a dialogue. 
And especially in Zoom, there's this worry, oh, we have this many slides, how much time do we have? Let's go through this, let's save questions for the end. And I think if you actually build in those breaks and make it less definitive and more provocative, leave room for questions and get the clients talking early, it breaks down the formality of it and the staring at the screen part of it and makes it more like a conversation. And you can get pretty close to, you know, assume familiarity or faster intimacy, maybe not to the extent that you could in an actual in-person physical chemistry situation, uh, but it's, it's pretty darn good if you make it a dialogue. I think if you're still in the business of presenting and it's a front to back situation, to your point, the clients are sitting through how many calls on their own, plus now how many agency presentations back to back to back. It's, it's just not going to register. Someone's going to zone out. Someone's going to tune out. And figuring that breathing room isn't just important for the clients, but on your side as well, because much like you and I are talking now in the context of a podcast, in person, you can pick up on what the other person said, finish each other's sentences, and even step on each other a little bit and interrupt as you get more excited. If you do that on Zoom, very quickly, two or three voices collide and nobody can hear anything. So uh, knowing when to lean forward and, and when to just kind of hold your breath, give it a beat, and then jump back in, thinking about the rhythms of that show uh, is is a totally different art form, I think. And, and it, it definitely a learning curve for sure. Yeah. Now, I like the idea of... Uh of pausing and, and, and getting input and uh, and making it more conversational, which seems to be, you know, one of the advantages of the technology. And, and obviously the, the pressure on ag the agency side is, is, you know, getting, as you said, sometimes to get through it versus engaging. Let's, um, let's talk about strategy. I mean, a lot of, I mean, I've been doing mentoring, I've been working for different people and um, I've been hearing a lot that it's never been a better time or a worse time to be a strategist. Um, I thought this was interesting. A friend of mine worked in China for a while, um, ran a massive global account but out of China, and he was telling me how excited the American executives were to come to China because they felt it was like a learning experience. They'd been working in the States for 10 years and they knew everything about this category and about this consumer. So when they came to China, it was something different and they had, they had to go learn everything all over again. And to me, it's, this moment strikes me as a little bit of one of those moments where you kind of really need strategy. You really need to know what's going on. Um, you certainly in the early days, you could, of this COVID crisis, you could see clients scrambling and making a ton of mistakes. They weren't reading the room. They were putting ads out that made no sense. Uh, you know, I wrote this piece about all brands should be public servants and not selling. Right. Uh, exactly. And, and um, there were a lot of people, it took a lot of people a lot of time to get over that um, selling piece and understand how uh, their purpose and their people centricity needed to shine through. Um, so, you know, we, on one hand, we've got, we've never needed strategy more from multiple dimensions, from understanding the consumer to solving business problems, to coming up with bright ideas to drive revenue, uh, when revenue is the most important thing. At the same time, the pressure on agency budgets means that these many, in many cases, highly paid individuals are often um, shown, have been shown the door. So we've got strategy departments that in some ways are needed more than ever, but are leaner than they've ever been. I think that's the tension, right? If you look at strategy 
historically, it was very much about an upstream conversation with senior clients, often facilitated by the marketing clients to talk about the direction of the company. What's the business advice you're giving and what would not just the CMO, the CEO be thinking about and what are the 20 questions they should be asking themselves you know, every week and how can you help guide that? And post holding company, the model naturally shifted more towards client service. So you suddenly had strategy used in certain key moments, creative briefings, obviously, new business pitches, but the department as a whole was underfunded relative to the client facing groups um, that were in every meeting every day. Similarly, you had some challenges with, with funding certain uh, specialist parts of the, the creative group. So if you look at some of the bigger agencies, often the strategists are outnumbered, you know, by a factor of four to one, five to one, even, you know, six or seven to one. And then you talked about, you know, the cuts during the pandemic. So if you look across the agencies, all of a sudden the pandemic happens and clients are losing their mind over what should we do next? Should we be out there? Couldn't agree with you more. Some brands had some things they could do and they did them. And some brands talked about that. Some brands went out there and had something worthwhile to say to help me navigate this. Most of them just rushed in because they felt, oh, we have to say something. Well, do you really? And a company I you know, bought socks from two years ago telling me that they're with me during these unprecedented times, it's really not helping my inbox. It's really not helping my psyche if that's coming on air while everyone was dealing with their own personal challenges. And there was a lot of that. But during that time, strategies got incredibly busy and everything from where are you in that landscape to what are the comms? How do you reconfigure your campaign? What do you do? What don't you do? What do you talk about? And the switch even to your point from brand messaging to brand behavior was so pronounced that the strategists were working double time or triple time. And I don't think it's ever been more important and I think there's a big pressure on agencies right now as they rethink the model, which has been problematic for the last few years, to really realize why are brands coming out of this period healthy and how are they navigating it? And how do you make strategy a team sport? So it's not all just on that strategist or strategists that are assigned to a single account. How do you activate it across an agency? And how do you rebundle strategy in the way that it used to operate in a truly integrated way so that you're thinking about the brand messaging, the brand behavior, you're thinking about, yes, the brand positioning, but you're thinking about the CX side of things. You're thinking about the comm side of things. I mean, we could go on and on about whether unbundling media was the original sin of the holding companies or whether or not uh, comms planning is, is the redemption of the industry. But that kind of thinking has been aggressively needed right now because the clients are realizing that everything they do out there is another dot in a constellation that they have to pull together. And each individual piece of communication isn't going to turn the tide. So it's, it's been a huge opportunity, I think, for strategists. If the agency, if the teams, if the departments have figured out how to get people working together and, and get bigger thinking happening faster. And usually the day-to-day teams are not staffed for that. That's, that's where the tension comes in. Mm. When it when it comes to you know you you mentioned earlier you were talking about the sort of um, the original you know when things are normal it, it it's the big picture thinking it's more of a long view I th- I think a, a critical thing right now is is 
getting the timing right. What, what, what is short, medium, and long-term? And, 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 and how, you know, when it comes to presenting, because you've got, um, you, you know, you've got societal cultural forces that are, you know, that are, that are talking about a build back better message. You know, if you look, if you look at it very cynically and cr critically, everything's broken and needs to be rebuilt. You're not going to do that in six weeks. And so you sort of probably have to take a very diagnostic view of the health of your client's brand and business and say, you know, what do we need to do right now to get things moving given the situation that we know? And, and then I, I'm always interested to hear how provocative and challenging do you want to be um, with pushing the status quo? Because, um, Everywhere you look, as I said, from diversity to sustainability, um, there are problems to solve. Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? I love what you're saying before about servants versus selling. I often say that brands that sell don't because modern brands, when things are good, don't sell. They celebrate. They celebrate shared values. They're out there you know, in a more iconic uh, way where they're part of the cultural landscape. And they're celebrating what you're doing with their products, what they're doing together, what they're doing for their employees. And then in harder times, that's where you get into the brand behavior and this idea of servant, you know, what are you doing for me now? And how is that helping me? Uh, it could be a simple thing. It could be making something easier. It could be making something more affordable, but, but what's that behavior? And I think that there's a tendency sometimes in strategy to your point about what is short, medium, and long-term to try to be overly definitive. Okay, we've got the positioning. Okay, we've got the answer. Here it is, ta-da, and you reveal that you know, wonderful three-word phrase or what have you, as opposed to talking about possibilities and talking about different paths and in a way, scenario planning. And in the moment, there's a clear, what can people fit in their heads and what are you in a position as a brand to do that is helpful and additive to that or not? And if not, keep quiet wait for your moment, show up when you can. That restraint is incredibly hard for some companies. Mm -hmm. And I think the ability to say no and hold back is a, is a key role of the strategist. And then the long-term, to your point, is a more elusive thing these days. And it's much more pragmatic to say, okay, short to medium, what are we going to do? And then how do we talk about what it is we're going to do? I think back to the tendency to be definitive there's an awful lot of talk, and you see this all the time in articles in the trades about, well, now everything's going to be like this, or this happened, and nothing will ever be the same, and this is the new normal. And yeah. it's never even remotely right a few weeks in, let alone you know several months in. It's, it's much more embrace the never normal, and then think about the, the universal truths that people like to come back to. And there's certainly a number of incidents in the last 10 years that we could point to where people boomerang back to to a certain type of behavior and a certain uh, uh, type of normal, if you will. And then other things that are going to come off kilter simply because they were headed that way anyway. And this just accelerated that that tendency to your point about is everything broken? Well, things don't just break. Things were on the wrong track. And how do we get them back on track? And how do you do that in a very, very deliberate way? Yeah. And I think that's part of the question. Uh, one thing I've heard in the questions clients are asking and in the better recommendations I'm seeing agencies make right now is there's a renewed appreciation for what a brand platform or what an integrated campaign really means. I think there's been an awful lot of the industry 
and you and I've talked about this before, where the fixation and strategy was so much on the consumer or so much about the white space left behind by the competition that, that a lot of agencies were looking at that saying, okay, we do some really cool advertising if we just took advantage of this opening and really nailed this consumer. And then a disposable campaign comes out of that. And it's interesting, it's clever, might get some attention, might move the needle on sales, might win some awards, but it's not gonna be there five years from now and 10 years from now. And the assumption might be, well, we live in a transient culture, but if you look at brands that have stuck around for decades or newer brands that feel like they're going to stick around for five, 10, 15, 20 years, there's a consistency in what they do this week and what they're gonna do six months from now in voice, in manner, in values. And during this time, I've heard a lot more interest in making sure all the dots connect and to make sure that that foundation is there because that can inform what you were talking about in terms of what do we do? Well, what would you do if you're this kind of company? If this is your platform, what's your responsibility in this moment? Rise to that occasion and then the next hill you can deal with when it comes. And it, it sort of calls BS on, on some of the 12 to 24 month planning that uh, has, has occupied a lot of time, but maybe is, is too elusive to worry about right now. Yeah, and I, th I, think, that's a I think that's a great point. I, I think if, if, if you didn't know what your brand is and, and it wasn't clear, you're gonna get find out, found out now pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other point um, where, I, where I thought you might be going was the more enduring, you need an enduring platform um, that you can use as your North Star. Um, and, but you also need real ideas that can, that can generate revenue. And, and I, and I think that's to me where, um, you know, the age, you know, where agencies have to prove their value is, you know, the, the campaign, the transient campaign is understood and we know, we know successful campaigns can be transformative, but I, I, I'm still, you know, we're still trying to understand how um, we can value add to a client's business by bringing them ideas that are um, in both enduring and capable of, of generating revenue. And that may be, you know, digital experiences. It may be, it may be um, CX, you know, it, it, it may be UX. Um, it seems that there are these two schools going on simultaneously, these sort of short, the, the people who think long-term like designers, like CX, like UX, and the people who think the strategic, strategic thinkers who think short term and are, are about campaigns. And then there are people who are thinking about products and about experiences. And there's sort of this coex. Yeah. I mean, going back to your point, you know, absolutely critical to have something to a big umbrella to put both those things underneath, but you've almost got these two groups. Yeah. They should be moving under this, omnipresent umbrella that they that they know is is guiding them but one's about getting that communication right and one's about focusing on the things that can impact the business directly through those cx digital whatever experiences products even couldn't agree more we've known forever that brand platforms can be both topical 
and timeless. But in a way, they got taken for granted, I think, in the quest for what's the next campaign. You talk about CX, if you really think about customer experience, advertising and communications is just one part of the overall experience, right? How I get treated on the call center, what happens in retail, all of that. It's always been a subset, but because of the way the industry has been oriented, CX is is often tacked on or thought of as more of a digital thing, but in but in fact the customer experience is, is much bigger than communications. And it almost comes back to making strategy very fundamental, which is what would you do if you were the client? And you know the power of having that North Star to amplify everything from upper funnel to lower funnel and to drive immediate sales, but also increase the efficiency of your campaign so that you're building that brand affinity and brand loyalty over time. You're also getting yourself on an arc of forgiveness if something goes wrong with the business or if some way there's a downturn in the economy and people drift away. How do you get them back? How do you make that a lot more magnetic? But I think a lot of strategists, because of the sheer volume of work hitting them in the day-to-day campaign work that most agencies do, have lost sight of those fundamental client questions. And the clients, let's face it, are also under siege. The lifespan of a CMO is still tragically short. They have to produce a certain amount of short-term accountability to their boards or their management while at the same time doing visible enough work that they can hopefully land at an even be- better or bigger gig uh, if, if they have the typical tenure of a, of a CMO. Uh, so under those circumstances, it's very natural for both sides to think much more tactically. But unless you have that overall architecture or just a sense of what you're about, really at the, at the very basic values and behavior standpoint, uh, in addition to not getting the numbers there, you you just don't get the efficiency. And um, it, it also radiates inside as well as outside the company. So it tends to cement everything down really, really well. Uh, and exactly to your point, building a brand and driving short-term sales are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they go hand in hand. And I think that people are, are rallying around that again, uh, because those are the brands that can flex in hard times and and maybe spring back a little bit faster. It seems to me that the I wonder I, I sort of speculated, you know, maybe at the beginning of the year that that we've sort of lost sight of brands. I mean, you and I are old enough probably to remember brands on the balance sheets, intangible values. Right. You know, you know, uh, accountants on Wall Street saying that you've got an asset, you know, an intangible asset that's worth six and a half billion dollars. And I, I just wonder if we've gone away from that. I wonder if this, sort of this idea of brand ubiquity, like anyone's a brand these days, any kid on Instagram can create a brand, you know, and that the, the, there's a sort of been a devaluation uh, and a sort of a, a, a ubiquity. Everything, if everything's a brand, then nothing's a brand. And, you know, actually sort of going back to some of the fundamentals and saying, no, you have a brand, it, it, you know, it has this value. Um, you know, it, it, it is the critical part of your business and you need to invest in it. And I, and I wonder if we've just sort of taken that for granted and it's, and, and we're so kind of, we, we've grown up in that and it's become sort of, you know, we've become sensitized to it when there's actually a whole new generation of marketers out there who know things like growth hacking, which is all about growing my user base. And brand is almost a secondary thing. It's almost like oh, they, they go and see an agency when they've maxed out um, their growth hacking um, 
methodology and they can't get any more users, they go and talk to the people who know about brands. And that might be the first time in four years they've had a decent conversation about a brand. One of the great ironies of the industry is that we're charged to be good with words and express things in simple but emotionally compelling terms so that you know people out there in the real world respond to them. And yet within our own industry, we're constantly destroying language, right? We're always, to your point, overusing and then using again. And then all of a sudden, well, that doesn't mean that anymore. We can't say this. And, and you find this language overused. And to your point out there in the world, even the notion of a brand has gotten very two-dimensional and, and, and frankly, very disposable. If you think about a brand more beyond the normal definitions of the emotional shorthand for someone's relationship with a company, but exactly your point about growth hacking and, and some of the harder operational aspects of business optimization that the consultants often deal with. If you think about uh, some of the, the trickier parts of, of CX, uh, when you really get into implementation with an existing company to compete with a, a younger, more tech-driven disruptor, if you, if you step back and say, let's think about a brand as the relationship between things, right? The behaviors that connect the choices you have to make as you manage a business back to what would you do if you were the client, not just the CMO, but the CEO, would you invest in, in more people, friendlier people at your call center? Would you run more television advertising? Would you change the, you know, the hang tags on the merchandise that's in the stores? You can't do all those things. And now that you have this crazy fractured media landscape, uh, you can't ever outspend the internet. So the choice of when, where, and how you show up, and what you're saying and what you're going to do, there needs to be some relationship. Everything needs to be a chapter in a bigger story. Otherwise, you're just throwing it away. Otherwise, you're, you're always going to lose the, the tonnage game. So I think thinking about the brand as that connective tissue puts a different lens on it. It's almost like thinking about the, you know, the negative space, the positive space, uh, and, and returns the thinking back to bigger strategic platforms while you're taking care of that micro brief. I think for a while strategy was oversimplified and people said, okay, well, what's the brief for this brand or what's the brief for this assignment? It should probably be briefs in the plural. Let's establish the platform. And once that's established, let's make each hook we put out there as sharp as possible because all these things have to work in concert. And that specific assignment uh, needs to be nailed around that particular objective, which to your point is probably a growth objective or, or something about moving traffic. Mm -hmm. So when you think about, um, a strategy department in 2020 you know it seems like you kind of need a you need a team and you need a team of divergent thinkers um, and diverse thinkers you know what do you what are you looking for when 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 you when you yeah I could, yeah I think you and I are very like-minded on that it's a team sport just as strategists should be working with creatives in such a way that the ideation, the, the ideation day to day is, is happening very organically. I mean, a lot of campaigns, the idea for that campaign might've been articulated or thought of or choreographed by a strategist. And then the pieces were executed by creatives or that strategic platform was, was, uh, you know, reverse engineered from something your creative partner said within strategy, it absolutely needs to be a team sport because you do need a range of thinkers. I always say that, I don't need everybody to be both left brain and right brain, but I need everybody to be able to order off the menu in the different disciplines. So if you're coming in more through the lens of comms planning, 
you need to have an appreciation for, for brand strategy, creative strategy, how that works, how that behaves. If you're more on the side of uh, analytics, uh, you know, business analytics and business intelligence, again, understand how that is so much more than data. It does need to lead to insights, often doesn't. Uh, in the industry, you see a lot of presentations where it's just straight data and it's more the cover your ass type support than it is, and this showed us a new mm-hmm. way uh, uh, support. Uh, and I think that gets back to the more the people on the left side of the brain hang out with the people on the right side of the brain and cross pollinate, uh, the richer the thinking is going to be. And that's, let's face it, what you do when you're first establishing a new client, a new campaign, that's what you would do in a pitch. So why aren't we doing that all the time? And I think agencies recognizing that there's a certain amount of budget allocated to strategy staffing need to come to terms with how to work across their organizations and even across offices to figure out when people come in, pitch in on a certain wave of work, a certain stage of work, certain aspects of CX, certain aspects of comms aren't part of a day-to-day need on many clients, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't show up at the critical inflection points when you're really stitching together that integrated platform. So, you know, Right now at Havas, for example, we have a combination of fixed positions and then enough headroom that we can play musical chairs and move people around and create these swarms around priority assignments or new opportunities uh, to do something remarkable for the clients or expand that engagement into areas that we haven't touched before. And the lone strategist on that business isn't going to get there. There's just not enough hours in the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to the sort of the, the Hal Riney days, you know, whether it's from a Cravis perspective or a strategy, a strategy perspective, it was sort of the notion was the guru, you know, I'm going to see Hal because Hal's going to tell me what I need to do. Um, you know, and, um, you know, John Steele was a very much a sort of archetype of, you know, somebody who, um, you know, was a very, was very much a, you know, a guru. Yeah. He definitely worked, had to work with, with other people, but, the notion now is, that, as you said, there are so many moving parts. There are so many people. Um, the idea that you have to be actually a facilitator—it um, sort of helps not to be the smartest person in the room. Whereas, it's interesting too, yeah. right? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it used to be. It used to be you. You. You know, the strategist. You're paid to be the smartest person in the room, and, and now that can be. Um, you know, that can actually be um, a, a difficult, a difficult place to be. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was going to say that to that point, I think the way to make everybody smart, everybody in the room smart, is to be the most curious person in the room. And if you come in with more and better questions than everybody else, you're going to see the patterns and you're going to get there, which is very different to your point about the, you know, distance, maybe observational, here's an idea approach. And I, and I would say that, you know, thinking about folks like Hal or John, again, part of their genius was the constant curiosity and and the questioning, right? I think if you're predisposed to say, what about this? What if we did that? Why not try something this way? And you think more about possibilities. It's much like the better and remarkable uh, creative talents that I've worked with. They rarely come up with an idea. They usually come up with so many ideas and then the partnership becomes about sifting that through and finding the clarity and finding the focus. 
And I think strategists have to do the same sort of thing. I think half of it is the rigor and the discipline. And the other half is giving yourself permission to just be so curious that you're just ideating all day. And if some of those ideas jump the fence and fall into a creative territory, that's great too. Let it be messy and get to a better outcome together. Yeah, and I think that's that's this, um, to me, it's always, you know, it's always been a challenge. I mean, I, I, I started this um, kind of IP, creating this IP last year around uh, what I call the conditions for creativity. Took it into um, a couple of shops, had some good head nods. Um, and, uh, you know, it, when I look back at it, it sort of seems dated by what we've been going through. And this whole idea that um, how, how, how the hell in a day, in a day of, of, of 14 Zoom calls, is anyone going to find the moments of inspiration? Not to mention the fact that they've got to look after their kids and all the other things. And, uh, you know, earlier in the year, there was sort of this, one, we were wondering with er, er, if everyone had the same creative brief because all the ads were looking the same. And, you know, the, the dearth of inspiration was so apparent. Um, and I think this is one of the challenges of this period is, is you know, it, you used to be able to, you know, you could curate in a physical, in a physical world, you could, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sort of so much against this Google planning by Google, um, you know, which is agree more. become de rigueur, you know, it's become the, the way agencies work right now. Um, and, you know, now we have every excuse not to go outside. And um, I, I just think this, this is one of the biggest challenges of all is how do you get that inspiration if you don't have the hours in the day and the places you go to, you can't go to. Um, and, you know, you can't try go and see a movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Where are you going to get that? And even with the dearth of new releases, you know, on streaming services and everything else, you mentioned podcast earlier, where are you going to get that inspiration? And the interaction that you're talking about is, is so key. I think the first you know, several weeks, certainly the first couple of months, I think people were so under siege and trying to deal with what was happening in their personal lives and the logistics of that, to your point, how do you get the bigger thinking, especially when people are under duress? Uh, I think what we've managed to do back to the start of this conversation is to say, okay, based on the work we have and based on the people we have, how do we build into the schedule? And this is where Unfortunately, right now, it's another call. It's, you know, it's another Zoom. But to your point, let's get away from the share slides, which forces it to be a lot more linear. It's a lot less unstructured than a collaboration in a room would be. And I, and I do think that that is limiting uh, in, in its output. But schedule a call with a different cast of characters, which with much less structure in it, to let people just talk or riff off something or bring in a couple of contrarian notions, you know, you're the designated provocateur for this topic for this week. And if yeah. you don't do that, if you don't find those moments where, okay, you have to be the human catalyst, the human hand grenade this week, and you don't build that in as an extra to do this week, mm -hmm. it's a bit like saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write this book or I'm going to paint my ceiling or I'm going to arrange these flowers. If you actually don't build it into your schedule right now, it's not going to happen. It's just going to be in your head. And, oh, I should really get to that. I should really think about 
you know, what's ahead for this client six months from now, or there's this interesting trend happening. I just read about it and wow, that would be really good, but oh damn, it's so late and I'm exhausted and I'm snow blind from staring at the screen. I'll, I'll get to that tomorrow. It just doesn't happen. And one of the things we've been trying to do is have sort of departmental and account check-ins on a manageable basis, not so much that everybody's got, you know, an extra call every single day, but to almost think out loud about what would you do if, and then create for the bigger opportunities, a separate series of moments around that so that it feels a little more open and, and more free to tell you the truth, which is the best you can do right now to replicate that feeling of we're just having a beer or we're having a coffee and we're just making stuff up. We're supposed to be in the business of empathy and ideation. So how do we get back to that in this highly rational, highly structured, highly virtual world? Do you think, um, you know, do, do you think when presumably there is, there is a vaccine or whatever, there is a return, um, we, we're going to see a completely, we, we're going to just, I feel if you want me to come into the office, I, if, as I'm saying as a client or as an agency employee, it better be worth my while because I think I can do a ton at home. And by the way, I've got two and a half hours commuting to do. Right. So I think the office, I think how we, how we work and what the office is and what the office delivers is going to have to change. I, don't, I, think if we, I think if we go back to it as normal, I think that's a wasted opportunity. You mentioned design shops, you add innovation firms to that. If you think about the way they tend to use their space, the space is less about internal or even external client meetings. There's certainly space for that. And that's a key part of their business when you want the face-to-face, look you in the eye chemistry. But often their space is designed more around those collaborations, those kickoffs, those ideation sessions. And if you look at what gets lost, both in terms of our work that we're doing on behalf of clients, as well as the work we're doing with clients, to your point, okay, we're coming in for, and that's a good use. And it's a very deliberate series of beautiful collisions between people to get rapid fire work done, ideation, hunker down, you know, get over this hill type collaboration, as opposed to the remote knock one thing off at a time because when it comes to just your work or your work that plugs into my work as part of the share doc people are definitely more productive on that when no one's interrupting them every five minutes they're able to have their own workspace at home which now they've established and to your point i heard i heard a client say a couple of weeks ago something very similar they they have like a two-hour commute so that's a hell of a long time to not be productive when you actually want to get more out of the day. Uh, And I think if you rethink the space around what are we coming in for, what's the intention there, and how do we get as much magic out of that as possible, I think there's still a huge need for people to come together. I think there's a huge uh, value to the space, but the idea that you're just sitting there and, and doing the isolated bits in a different location, in isolation, so you can look down the table and see the person sitting next to you do the same thing, what's the point of that? That, that isn't, that isn't special. It's not productive and it's not additive. I mean, you look at, you look at a ton of agencies. If you, if you did a walk through a ton of agencies in the last 36 months, you'd see a bunch of people sitting with headphones on. 
Just tapping away right. their laptops, you know, and, 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 you know, when they're called into a meeting, it would be like you're dragging me away from what I, you know. So, you know, it wasn't exactly ideal before. We weren't exactly maximizing kind of the use of the available talent in, in terms of from a collaborative perspective. Um, it, was, it was very much sort of people, you know, yeah, maybe they're on Slack channels. That's where everything's getting done. But you could you can be on a Slack channel anywhere. Um, so yeah, I think there's a there's a I think there's a big opportunity to to rethink re, rethink you know how we work. And you know one of the one of the um, learnings on the conditions for creativity was we throw so much stuff away. You know, just because oh absolutely just because the idea doesn't isn't quite fully fleshed out doesn't quite fit the brief um, and it's a Wednesday and we're presenting on Friday, it gets tossed in the trash. And, you know, you look at so many other businesses and they don't do that. They'll put it up in a room to be revisited later. And, you know, with so much wastage, intellectual wastage, that um, just because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit the need at that moment in time, it gets forgotten. And, you know, there, there, there are so many things I think we can relearn uh, or learn from what we've just been through and, and make things, do things in a better way. Couldn't agree more. If you look at a healthy agency environment and you think about, you know, what does the creative culture really think about? You're talking about, you know, how do you create an environment for creativity? The healthy agencies tend to have individuals who, you know, We've got people on both ends of the spectrum from introvert to extrovert and all the variations in between, but there are people who are natural catalysts and connectors and folks in the work, folks, you know, managing teams who are more likely to walk around and help build that bottom up collaborative culture. Well, if you think about that being part of a role that you're casting for, is this a person a catalyst for ideation? Uh, that's often a, a strategist, right? A creative strategist. Is this person a connector? Are they naturally the type of person who thinks, oh, we should get this other person in the conversation. You should meet so-and-so and all of that. That role takes on a different meaning as you get away from the, 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 the myth of the open floor space with the people on headphones, as you were describing it, which is people in isolation nearby to each other physically. How do you actually make those connections and do it when you need it? Not as a distraction when you're trying to get your work done. But when we come together, let's really come together, whether it's virtual or in person. And what do we need to do in order to get that right? And who can help choreograph and lead that? So I think as agencies change, thinking about the casting, even from a management and a uh, facilitation standpoint, much as you would think who's gonna run that workshop, everything at an agency is a workshop, right? You have internal clients, you have to get the most out of that team. And then to your point, part of the role of the connectors can be don't lose that intellectual property just because this idea wasn't right for this client at this moment in time. Guess what? If it was based on a consumer insight, it was based on a behavioral trend. If it was based on some universal truth, it might apply to another client or that client again in a few months time. So don't throw that away. And how do you get that institutional knowledge in enough people's heads beyond the share slide side of things so that people can access that thinking again and have it on hand. Because even if that idea isn't right for the next client, it might spur yet another idea and, and open things up. Uh, yeah. and, and it's going to be more important to do that given how little time people have to, to do some of the homework on their own. 
Yeah, I think there's an I think there's an there's there's an emerging role, which is yeah. re redefining HR. I mean, I, I think in the in the in the conditions deck, I basically say there isn't a sports team in the world that doesn't know the vital statistics of all its talent, and there couldn't be an industry in the world that's, that doesn't know enough about its talent, and that's advertising. It knows zero about who works well with who. Oh, Bill's leaving to join Sochi. That means Andy's on his own. Let's put let's throw Fred uh, as his partner. <laughs> well, you don't know if Fred and Andy get along. You know, you don't right. have compatible, you have no data, you have no information, you have no insight. Um, and, you know, it just, it just seems that that is such a, a missing link in terms of being able to build teams, being able to get people to work together um, in the right way. And really, and I mean, if, you know, one thing's come out of this, you know, you can't survive this period without empathy without empathy for your team members. If, if, if you know someone's going through a particularly hard time because they've got issues with their parents or whatever, that has to be posted that people have to know that and you have to deal with people differently. Um, but in the agency environment and you know, pre-COVID, it was like, you know, that stuff's buried. You're not supposed to have empathy. If you, can't show, if you can't work all weekend, you can't work 18 hours, then we don't want you around. And um, it doesn't seem in the best interest of, um, you know, creating the best products, creating the best environment. Well, that was the big shift, right, from the pre to post holding company world. In many cases, as agencies sort of scaled and they wanted to go after, you know, the so-called efficiencies around that because it used to be, and you still see this at independent agencies, the cultures tend to feel more like an extended family, even as they grow. And to your point, that person's personality and their quirks are part of the reasons they're an asset. And the diversity becomes an outcome. You don't have to make it a goal because it becomes an outcome of people trying to find someone interesting and challenging to work with uh, and someone who stimulates them in different ways. And you see this culture that is more like casting a, a film where you're casting people for different parts based on who they are, not just what they do. But the larger companies fell into a, a model for you know more than a decade of, well, you know, to borrow your example, we need a copywriter. Well, actually, no, you don't need a copywriter. You need that copywriter who's really good at technology or long form copy. You need this copywriter who can hit out of the park on these kinds of films that we're being asked to do, you know, in an episodic series on, on social. You're casting that and then you're casting people around the partners they need and they have, as opposed to managing people off spreadsheets or just looking at commoditized talent at scale that never gets you to the brilliant idea and that gets you away from being in the empathy and idea business. So I agree with you. I think this moment has forced a return to that where strategy has been in demand. I think it'll continue to be in demand and inherent in that is bringing a little more humanity, a little more genuine insight into what you do and how you do it, not just insights into the client's business. Yeah. So let's, um, let's switch to, um, your overdue book. Your publisher. Uh, the publisher's call. The publisher's call, yeah. I had one come out last year, which is very exciting. I tend to keep myself sane by writing mystery novels. When work gets busy, I take a little time off and I come back to it every couple of years. But I had one come out last year called Boxing the Octopus. And they asked for a follow-up, which I should be turning in uh, late this year. But of course, I'm looking at 
the days tick by in Zoomlandia. I still think it's March. Some days I wake up and I say, how the hell did the summer just evaporate? So a little behind on that. So the one thing I lack is as much writing discipline. Uh, I can write pretty fast. I'm a good binge writer, but my friends who do it full time tend to wake up every day. They do it like clockwork. But if you work in advertising, you're, to borrow your phrase, a servant to all. So your schedule gets whipped around right and left. And I just adapt to that when I find myself with a gift of time or a gap on a weekend when I'm not neck deep in a pitch, then I try to bang out a few pages and hope for the best and hope for a forgiving publisher and uh, I'll get there. I'll get there in the end. So is the, uh, is the new book a continuation of the previous or is it a completely new? They're all written as standalones. They have kind of a shared universe and shared characters. They're all uh, comedic thrillers or slightly sideways mysteries. They tend to be based in the San Francisco area where I used to live, but each one deals with a slightly different subject matter and, and always a different you know, triggering event. This particular one has more to do with the art world, uh, which I had known a little bit about, but over the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of research into it, and it's, it's kind of fascinating, very easy to get lost in there. So what specifically about the art world? Was it an intriguing to you? About, I had read an article about some incredibly audacious art heists that you would think would be right out of the Thomas Crown Affair or a movie like that, that had been happening quite recently, actually, over the last few years. And then that led me to learning more about the world of forgeries and how incredibly sophisticated those have become and how much of the art that's cataloged and in museums and everything else is actually uh, possibly a forgery based on the sheer penetration of forgers over the last, say, 20, 30 years. And I just thought that was fascinating. I thought, okay, if you could pull a story out of that, that might, uh, might be fun. And it's, 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 it's a great extension of what we do for a living because, you know, you find something you're passionate about and you do the research and, you know, for a year, that's all I'll do is read historical novels, nonfiction books and, and novels related to that subject. And then you become a, a temporary expert enough to put it out on the page and have some fun with it. And then you move on to the next topic that you become obsessed with and dive in deep. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. That's, that's really interesting because um, you've got you can see how um, you know you can you you can apply your curiosity to diving deep, and then you must then there has to be a time when you have to call a time out and say, "I could spend the rest of my life investigating <laughs> absolutely Now I've got to turn this into something, and then the real creative work begins because you suddenly got to have characters, you got to have a plot, and you've got to have these interesting tensions between these characters. And you've got to start crafting a narrative, which is really the, the hard work, right? Absolutely. I think that's where it's analogous to what we do, because you could always dive in deeper. We've all yeah. seen clients who want to do more research and more segmentation. At some point, yeah. get on with it, get out there, get in the marketplace and make stuff up. And sometimes you have to make mid-course adjustments. Sometimes you might write your way into a wall, but everything, and I believe this is brands, brands are a story, right? You need an ongoing narrative. And I think the art form of writing narratives, whether it's in a presentation, a pitch, whether it's thinking about a brand as a never ending story, that's almost a lost art uh, at, at some agencies. And I, and I think you can see the cost and how disposable some of the creative work has become. And I think similarly, when you're writing a book, you could spend 10 years researching something and never write a single chapter. At some point, you need to give yourself permission and just get started and then fill in the blanks as you go and know enough to get it right. I'm always fascinated when you watch films that you love and when you watch the uh, cut that's released and the director's cut and then you see the deleted scenes 
or in the extras, you, you hear them talking about some of the choices they made. Usually when you see those deleted scenes, they're well acted, they're well shot, they were great. They cut them out for time or because it wasn't added to the narrative. It didn't move the thing forward. Uh, it wasn't taking you anywhere. And I think similarly, uh, writing is, is, it's more about editing than the writing itself. It's more about those choices. And to your point, it's about getting it done. It's, a, it's about let's do something and then make it better as we go uh, rather than just staring at a blank page forever until you think you're, you're going to say something so perfect that it never needs to be you know, adjusted. I think in marketing, people make the same mistake. They want to get everything right, whereas getting something pretty much right and putting it out there and engaging with and interacting with your own customers, you're going to make it wonderful maybe in a month, maybe in six months, maybe in two years. Most brilliant campaigns started off good, then they got really good, then they got really, really good. And I think that's where both in writing and in work, the, the self-editing is just giving yourself permission to, to make choices and, and get on with it. So do, just, just going back to the, the act of writing or the art of writing. So when you, do you feel that you're, you're writing in your head? So by the time, I mean, I've read a ton of pieces where writers talk about process or approach. Do, do you feel it's written in your head and you just have to put it to paper? So, you, or do you actually feel that putting words on the page, you're, you're sort of, it's, you're starting it. Where do you start? Is it already in your head and you're just getting, putting it onto paper or is it, you put it on paper and it starts to form? How, how's, how's it work? Yeah, I think you're definitely, I'm always writing in my head. And I think you think about, you know, a scene, a scrap of dialogue, a moment, a triggering event. And you're trying to get that out. And I remember reading years ago, uh, I think it was Michelangelo, not Da Vinci. I think Michelangelo described the art of sculpting as releasing the figure that was trapped inside the marble or something like that. Right. And I always thought that was brilliant. And I think that when you're writing, you have something in your head and you just get it started. And years ago, I got the advice to leave yourself an opening. And what that meant was if you finish a chapter and you say, right, okay, that works before you edit it, before you go back and get some distance on it, tighten it up, what have you, immediately, even if it's the middle of the night and you're just exhausted, write the opening sentence to the next chapter. And you may look at it the next day and say, this is absolute crap, but it's a start and you react to it. And it's also put something in your head that you now have to puzzle over and worry over. And I think that's the main thing is you're writing in your head, you get just a scrap of it down. You can always reorder things, you can always move things around, but in a way you're telling yourself a story. And it's interesting in, in the mystery genre, for example, more than half the writers don't outline. They might do a retroactive outline when they get farther enough uh, or far enough along in the book, but initially they're thinking about uh, a, a, an incident or, or a, 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 a series of characters and it just gets started. And then you're asking yourself basically what happens next? What happens next? And you're mapping that out and you're putting those words on the page. So the more you have that in your head, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, based on that scrap that you left yourself on the page, the more you're likely to finish the book. Mm. All right, so I mean, maybe, the, maybe a final point, I know we're running up against time. Um, the pursuit of passions, you know, like, Advertising is an all-consuming industry. It sort of sucks the, you know, sucks the life out of everyone. And, um, you know, I always felt it was important that 
people who have passions should be encouraged. Um, uh, you know, that is, if we encourage people to be, to pursue and do that stuff outside of the working hours as best we can, the stuff they do inside the working hours is going to be even better. If we shut that off, we're going to lose something. Could not agree more. I think that we are only as good as our passions and our ability, let's face it, at work, your job is to get incredibly excited and geeked out about whatever challenge or problem is presented and whatever client comes across that threshold, that needs to be the most fascinating obsession that you've got, you know, in that moment. It takes a lot of emotional energy to do that well, I think, as a strategist. But where do you find that passion and where do you find those personalities who are like that, who can get so excited about something that's just thrown at them? And I think you want to find people with passions outside. I've worked with people who are painters, people who, you know, are so obsessive about not just a, a sport, but the, the craft around it. Uh, people who have taken up pottery, people who have been into calligraphy. One woman uh, decided she was going to do a new painting every week. Another joined the circus, uh, literally joined the circus. And I thought this is brilliant because it just brings a different perspective. And I think some of those moments and experiences and also, in a way, the, the uh, emotional metaphor of what did you just experience? How do you bring that feeling into what you're writing to a client? I think that our job is to always fuse the rational and the emotional. And I think if you bring those passions outside of work and then you know, use them also as a stress release, I think that if all you do is collapse at the end of the day, you're not getting anything out to bring back in the, the good stuff. And whatever that is for you, Again, it could be anything, could be cooking. Uh, that's, that's the key because that's the you of it. And I think we have to get back to casting people who do these remarkable jobs as opposed to casting the job and then finding a human being to fit in that box. Uh, that's the way of mediocrity. Uh, the first, the casting side of it is where the magic happens and that's where the personality comes through and that's where the emotions start to sing. Brilliant. Thank you. This, is a, this has been an amazing conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Same. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.